You're listening to the Scottish Football Forums podcast, the home of Scottish football banter. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Scottish Football Forums podcast. I'm John and I'm joined with a fellow regular, Vinny. How are you doing tonight, Vinny? I'm good, John. Uh, very excited about this uh, episode tonight. Uh, can't wait to get started. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. It's it's always I like with it when we get guests on now to try and share the hosting with um you know the fellow team when we can. So um I'm glad you're able to come on. And um, yeah, as I've alluded to, we do have a special guest tonight. Um, needs not much introduction. Um, former Scots Sports Satanta presenter and horse racing guru. Jim Delahunt. Jim, welcome along to the podcast. How are you? Thank you very much, John. Thank you, Vinny. I'm in very good form and uh, delighted to be with you guys and uh, looking forward to a good old leather. Yeah, that's good. We're absolutely um, honoured to have you on. And um, Just before we also get into, you know, bits about our childhood, like um, the Scotsport days, etc. Let's talk about um, what you do now. Um you also have your son call him the Bookie Basher. Um, we won't discuss how your weekend ACA went there because I did, did my research it didn't go well. How is that yeah. going for you? Thank, thankfully, Motherwell did as a turn. But uh, no, yeah, I've, I've, been a, I've, been a, I've been a sports columnist on the Scottish Sun. This is my 13th year, hopefully not unlucky. Um, so we've, we've done pretty well. Um, I do two racing columns a week, Thursday and Sunday, and I do a two-page football spread on a Saturday. Um, that takes up a fair old bit of my time. Um, if, if you want a success story, then we were champion tipster Britain and Ireland 2018. And uh, last year, 2021, we finished second out of, out of 54 contestants, uh, all newspapers and websites and radio and all the rest of it and TV. So uh, we, we, we do OK with the old horse racing and we've had a few triumphs in the football and uh, I, I can get into a bit more explaining the football column later on, but uh, suffice to say it's, uh, it's popular enough that we're still in employ. Oh, it's good that you're, you're kept busy in, um, in, in these times. And, uh, you know, how much enjoyment um, do you get uh, um, still keeping your hand in the writing um, side of things? I, I love writing. I've, I've, been a, I've been a journalist since, a professional journalist since 1982. Uh, I, I started uh, on the old uh, Sunday Standard, which was the original Sunday version of the Glasgow Herald. Uh, I started on that as an undergraduate. Um, I was obviously still a student. Uh, I was halfway through my business studies degree and uh, I'd had a couple of uh, letters published in the racing press. And the editor of the Sunday Standard back then was a guy called Charlie Wilson. And uh, Charlie uh, picked up one of my letters, sent me a letter and asked me to come in for a chat. And after a three month unpaid trial, he took me on at 25 quid a week. And uh, I did racing for 18 months while I was still a student. So that was tremendous uh, experience for a, a lad like me. Uh, my, my racing interest had, had dated back to you know, early childhood, uh, my, my grandfather, my mum's dad, uh, I called him Papa, uh, his name was Huey Brown from, from Ardrossan, and he was a big horse racing man, not not in the sense of, of tweeds and trilbies, but just, just a, a man who followed the horse racing day in, day out, and I, I picked it up from him, 
And then when I was 16, uh, my own father, uh, who was another Jim Delahunt, he asked me to take my younger twin sisters to horse riding lessons. Now, they were nine. As I say, I was 16, and I took them once. They both chucked it. I kept going, and I didn't retire till I was 41. So uh, I, I, I kept the horse riding going right through my 20s and 30s, doing a bit of show jumping and uh, cross country. And then when, when I was early 30s, I was down filming at Cree Lodge uh, in Ayr, which is now a block of flats, but then it was the biggest racing stable in the country. And uh, Linda Perra asked me, she'd, she'd heard that I used to ride, and she said, you fancy coming riding racehorses? Now, by this point, I think I was 32. I need to check that, but I think I was 32. Still fit, but uh, it was a, quite, a, quite a thing for me to get, swing my leg over a racehorse. And I did that one morning, and I, I went back every Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday for nine years. Uh, as I say, chucked it at 41, uh, but I still follow the racing big style, as you know, from a professional point of view. And uh, I've, I've been an owner, I've been a winning owner, I've, I've had 10 winners as an owner. Uh, as a jockey, I, there's, a, there's a myth that I was a, a, a full-time jockey, I wasn't, I was an amateur rider, uh, which means you need a jockey's licence, but you're not a professional jockey. And uh, that allowed me to ride out for various trainers apart from Linda. Uh, and I managed to, I was lucky enough to be given, I think, 12 rides on the track. Uh, over over the over the course of that time, and I, I finished third place. Never managed a winner, but as as you can imagine, as as a journalist writing about horses, to be allowed to ride in races and and mingle and rub shoulders with these guys and gals was just absolutely magnificent, and and that's always stood me in good stead. So I've probably bored you now. No, no. Listen, Jim, Jim, not at all. The complete opposite. And what I was uh, going to hit out with was. For, for someone like me, who's, who obviously knows you predominantly from, from a footballing perspective, yeah. I was aware that you um, had an interest in horse racing, and obviously that's that's a big part of your career at the moment. But I, I was completely unaware of all that side of things, so I think it's fascinating to, to get a wee insight to that. Can I go back to one of your uh, points you said there? Yeah. Obviously, you, you, were, you were a student when you sort of got that first break going into yeah. journalism. Obviously, Going back to sort of the 80s and 90s when print was such a big thing uh, and, and whatnot, and you, you really had to go and learn your trade either through, you know, you, you were very fortunate you, you had that experience quite early on, um, or you would have people who'd have to go for qualifications and, and work their way up. Obviously, you know, in the, particularly in the last 10 years, there's been a real emergence of, you know, I'm thinking about particularly in, in, in football terms. There's a lot of people who write blogs and, you know, amateur journalism and, you know, myself included. I mean, I'm, I'm not like John here, who is a published author now, um, which is which is quite something. Um, and yeah. we'll, we'll come on to that later, uh, John. We always manage to drop that in. But uh, so um, I was just curious, Jim, do you have a, a take on that? Do you ever look at any of these online blogs of, of, of people who, who fancy themselves as journalists? And because I can imagine there's, there's maybe, I'm not saying you personally, but there's maybe a lot of people who have been around for a long, long time. And, you know, it's, it's a bit like who are these young upstarts think, thinking that they can, uh, you know, write about football on, on, on the same level that we can and, and, and whatnot. I was just wondering if you, if you had a take on that at all. Um, let me see. I, I, I don't have any problem with, with, with anybody who feels that they have an opinion and the, 
and they have an audience out there and, and they, they'd like to get it across. I mean, as, as, as you mentioned, way back in the early 80s when I started, there was nothing like that. Uh, and indeed, uh, to actually work as a journalist, you had to be a member of the National Union of Journalists. But the trick was to be a member of the National Union of Journalists, you had to prove that I think it was 50 percent of your income came from journalism. Now, it took me two and a half years after I graduated to get a full time job in journalism. Uh, and it took me once once I got that full time job, it was a non-union shop. Uh, and I then had to go in front of a committee in Irvine uh, and convince them that I was earning enough from journalism on a, on a free paper in Kilmarnock to justify, justify being given a union card. Uh, and uh, I am still a member of the NUJ. Uh, and, and during my career at STV, I was what they call the deputy father of the chapel. Uh, and the father of the chapel was the one and only still very famous Bernard Ponsonby. Oh, yeah, well. uh, and Bernard and I were the, the dream team, if you like. Uh, we were both on screen. We were both the union leaders. And uh, in the famous STV strike, when one of the producers had to read the news one day, uh, we were out in the picket lines. And, and I can tell you as well, Shireen Nanjiani was at the back door when we were at the front. Uh, so we were we were all out there. Um, and uh, we all stood by all our colleagues who were fighting for a better deal. But I, I digress a little bit. So to get back to your point, um, that there were very few opportunities back then. So you did have to take them with, with both hands. And I, I suppose, with, without being big-headed, I suppose I did, uh, and, and progressed up through the ranks. But it, it was very difficult back then. Uh, I, don't, I don't grudge anybody the chance to, 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 to have a pop now. Uh, I've, I've, my youngest son's only 15. Uh, he's already expressed an interest in journalism. I don't know if, if he'll take it any further, but if he was to suddenly turn up with a blog, I wouldn't object to that. Uh, if, if a few people want to listen to it, that's tremendous. So, no, I don't, I don't begrudge anybody their, uh, their, their chance to make a name for themselves and, and prove that they have the talent. If you have no talent, you'll fall by the wayside. Simple as that. Yeah, no, that, that's true. I'm, I was just laughing at you, uh, you know, the, the trials you had to go through, you know, um, and uh, to, to, yeah, show evidence that you, you were yeah. capable of doing this job, whereas now it's, you know, you can get a free website and you can have as Absolutely. many spell mistakes as, as you like. And if, <laughs> if you've got a platform, then people will, you know, over, over the internet shout at you and argue with you. And uh, yeah, it, I, I think to a certain extent, it, it can be quite dangerous sometimes for people to fall into that. But I think your last point there, um, Jim, was um, if you're not got the talent or even that drive, then it, it will soon stop one way or the other, won't yeah. it? Yeah, it, it, it certainly will. I mean, I, I I have been on a few podcasts and I'm delighted to be on, on yours. Uh, but I've, I've, I don't think, I've, have I ever done one myself? No, I don't think so. I've been asked to do a few, but I, I've, I've never got involved. Uh, but it's not, not something I would rule out in the future. Um, but it, it would have to be, I don't know, it, it would have to be done properly. I don't really fancy doing something from scratch. I would fancy some organisation that knew what they were doing so that I could just step in. So maybe I'm a bit lazy in old age. Ask the test here, you could be on here more often, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you mentioned, um, you also described um, the, the passion of your um, your horse racing and, um, you know, some, some great stories that you've had um, 10, 10 winners as an owner. What was the, what was your favourite? Um, what Of all the courses that you've been to, what's your favourite? 
My favourite is the first one. Uh, I was I was taken to air for the very first time as a fifteen year old. Thought you'd say that. Yeah, and uh, that 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 has to this day that's my favourite course. Um, I I currently front up at uh, Hamilton where where I introduce the horses and jockeys in the paddock, uh, and I also do the same at Perth. Uh, I occasionally help fill in at Musselburgh. Uh, and there might be something else coming up very soon, but um, it's it's something that I enjoy doing. I mean, I I, I enjoy talking into a microphone. I enjoy people listening to me, and and I'm, I I don't get nervous. I, I, it's, uh, you get the the little adrenaline buzz, and you just you just open your mouth and speak. Um, I I did a I did a radio show for a while, which uh, used to be six hours on a Saturday afternoon, and there was no script. You had a, a 15 second intro, which you may have jotted down in the back of a fag packet. But after that, you were flying by the seat of your pants. And uh, I, I think it takes a certain type to do that. And uh, I, I enjoyed doing that for a while. I'm not sure I would want to dive back into it, but uh, I certainly enjoyed it for, for the time that I was doing it. And uh, yeah, uh, Air, Air is my number one track. Uh, I love Hamilton, though. I love Hamilton. I love Perth. Uh, but Air is a place where I was just so delighted to... Uh, to actually get a couple of rides and 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 be involved on that race course where, where I've been taken to as a boy. Uh, Jim, I was going to again just you you mentioned it in passing there about things like being on air for for six hours at a time on, on the radio. Thinking about obviously you've done writing, you've done radio, you've done television, you've you've been across everything. I'm curious, particularly when it comes to something like live broadcasting, is there you know, what are the challenges that, you know, a lay person, a viewer might not necessarily pick up on? Um, I, I, a couple of weeks ago, I had the pleasure of speaking to Leanne Crichton, who, yeah. who's just, she's finishing her journalism degree and um, she's she's started a bit of radio, a bit of TV as, as well as her playing and coaching. And she described exactly that, that adrenaline rush. She she says she absolutely loves having that. Um so and you know you, you have that you know butterflies in, in your tummy and whatnot and, and doing live telly all of a sudden it's a deep breath and off we go. But is there anything in particular that um you know that someone watching or listening might not know about that, that's a particular challenge? I, I I think you just have to have the confidence uh, to do it. To be perfectly honest, and uh, it's not rocket science, but you do have to have a, a clear head and you do have to be able to think on your feet. Um, I never, ever got nervous, never, ever got nervous, uh, but I was always run through with adrenaline. Um, so some, some would say that is nerves, but I always found it was the adrenaline that kept you going. And, and just this, this thought that you could not fail, uh, you, you know, you, no matter, you, you might have a, an empty head for a split second, but you know that two nanoseconds after that split second, you have to say something. Uh, or else you're out the door. So um, I, I think it was an adrenaline that uh, always kept me going, and it's, it's still the same. I mean, when I turn up at a race course now, um, I've, I've got the race card in front of me. I, I know a lot of the jockeys, I know a lot of the trainers, but I haven't a clue what I'm going to say when I pick up the microphone. So it, it's just a case of ha- having the knowledge behind you and the confidence to, to go ahead and speak and, and also speak with some level of... Is intelligence the right word? I'm not sure. With some level of intellect, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, that, that people are going to buy what you're saying. Um, and, and we all joke in this game saying we got away with it or we get away with it. But you, you do. You ha- but you have to get to a certain level to get away with it. And uh, I, I, I think we, 
you know, over the years, I've, I've probably just about hit that level. <laughs> do, do you know, I'm, I'm laughing, Jim, because one of the other things that I, I wrote down, and um, you, you'll be aware that it's, it's quite popular these days to think about, you know, positive mentality and, and having a good, strong mindset for things. So one of the things I was going to ask you was if you could sort of define what your mindset of, let's face it, your sustained success over a, a long period of time, like I said, over um, multiple um, genres of, of, of journalism. Um, I was going to ask you, you know, what, you know, what, what drives you? But I, th- I think you've probably answered that question. Just that, that confidence you, that you have and that undoubted natural ability. I mean, we, we were just blethering before um, John hit record. And I noticed there was just a slight change in tone of your voice. It was as if, right, okay, here we go, and we're broadcasting now. Yeah. And uh, I think it's just that you you seem to have this natural ability, and whether or not you intentionally think, right, here we go, and you do slip into a mindset or not, it comes across very natural. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I agree with it to the extent that I'm not bombing my load, if you like, but. Um... What I would say is, and and if you talk to anybody else who worked with me over the years, I could not rehearse, could not rehearse, never, ever could I rehearse either TV or radio, just couldn't do it. I had no motivation to rehearse. All I wanted to do was to do it live. Uh, rehearsals bored me. I could never get the right tone in rehearsals. Uh, if I had to do it, I would basically do it as a walkthrough but without any feeling. I, I just had to do the stuff live, so I, I think um, obviously if you're if you're doing voiceovers and maybe doing a, a highlights package or something, uh, then it's a different attitude. But when, when it came to live broadcasting, I just wanted to get on with it. So I suppose there's that attitude, but I'm I'm, I'm not clever enough to define it any further. I'm afraid. <laughs> Yeah, you can't really rehearse for a live sport because otherwise there'd be people knocking at your door saying, what did you know? <laughs> <laughs> you don't want these people, um, you know, uh, coming up. But, um, the, the other thing I was, I was going to mention, um, I mean, when I was um, obviously preparing um, for boot lunch day, etc., you know, I didn't yeah. feel nervous either, but you mentioned knowledge would be a key thing. Um, but the research that you do as well must really... Um, um, help when you're preparing for these sorts of events although you can't obviously script what's going to happen in a live live horse racing game or a live football match still having that research um, and knowledge available must really help your confidence yeah very much so and uh but again i think that's a natural thing you know if if if, if you've been paid decent money to do a, a high profile job then i i think it's your duty to uh, be prepared um and everybody gets caught out I suppose if I really put my mind to it I would remember getting caught out once or twice but I just can't recall anything at this moment in time but uh, as, as long as you're prepared and, and you, you have enough backup that um, if something goes wrong that you can keep going I mean we, just to give you an example um, I, I did rugby funnily enough everybody forgets I did rugby uh, I did Scotsport rugby I did ITV rugby and we were doing the National Cup finals at Murrayfield one Sunday afternoon. So there was there was a, the, the kind of little one, which I think was the bowl. Then there was a, the, the medium one. Then there was a the big one. And uh, we got to the big one. And we remember, we'd done three live games. We'd analysed two of them. We'd, we were just in the process of analysing the third. And my PA, uh, Mandy, I'm sure she's not listening, uh, she, she said, Jim, you've only got a minute left. So I, I, I thought I'd better wind up. Now, I had the great Andy Irvin, the former Scotland captain, with me. So Andy and I wound up 
And just as I was about to throw off air, Mandy said, oh, my God, I've miscalculated. You've got another 15 minutes. And Andy couldn't hear this. Andy didn't have an earpiece in, so I'm the only one that knows this. So Andy thinks I'm winding up, and then I turn back to him and start talking utter gibberish. And I kept him going till the, till the break. And at the break, he said, what on earth is going on? I said, they miscalculated. We've still got another 12 minutes to go. So we basically ran around the studio, picked up all the newspapers that we've been browsing before uh, the programme came on, picked out about six stories and basically chatted about them for 12 minutes. So you, you just have to have your wits about you uh, when it comes to a situation like that. And as, as I said right at the very start, sometimes you get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. Um, <laughs> so obviously you mentioned um, obviously that you're in Scottsport Rugby, so it obviously takes you back to 1990 when you first started in Scottsport. Yeah. How did that gig um, come about? Did you do stuff like, um, before um, and uh, behind the scenes, or was it just a case of you worked your way and that was your gig? Well, 1990, I joined STV, and I joined STV as a news producer because I'd, I'd been working on as a news editor at Radio Clyde, my, my first incarnation at Radio Clyde. And uh, so I joined as a news producer and within within about a month, I think I was on air uh, presenting the news, but it was only the wee, what we called the wee diddy bulletins, which went out at like quarter to 11 in the morning and 20 past three in the afternoon. I don't even have them anymore. Uh, so I, was, I did them for a few weeks and then they, they realised that I'd, I'd done a bit of sport. So they, they started making me a sports reporter. And then I think by the, by oh, about three months in, I was, I was presenting Scotland Today. Uh, doing the sport on Scotland today. I think I think I was sharing duties with Hazel Irvin back then. So that shows you how long ago it was. And uh, I did Scotland today for eight years. But during that eight years, I also fed some stuff into Scott Sport and I did some stuff for St. Gravesy on ITV on a Saturday lunchtime. Uh, and then just before France 98, they decided to offer me the actual Scott Sport job. So uh, they offered me that job, which I was delighted to take. So I actually made my Scott Sport debut presenting Scotland against Brazil uh, in, in, in the opening match of the, the rugby, not the rugby, the, the football World Cup. Uh, uh, have I got the dates right? Yeah, 1998. Um, so that, that was my debut, and I, I did Scott Sport for another eight years before moving on. So um, during, during the spell in, in, in the chair in Scottsport, I, as well as doing all the football and various European championships before we uh, before I did Scottsport, I did them for Scotland today uh, in the days when we used to qualify. Um, I, I also did Rugby World Cups. So I did, I did Rugby World Cups from oh, uh, nine, 91 all the way through. I think I did one. When did I do one? I did one 91, 95, 99, I think did 2003 as well so I was very heavily involved in rugby too but because that had a much smaller audience not that many people remember I did that but the, the profile the football was a high profile thing and that, that was the thing that I enjoyed most I have to say. So Jim you, you get that show and I, I remember that um, you know I, I would have been sort of 10, 11 just before I went to high school that was the France 98 World Cup. So I remember, um, obviously, right into my football, the, the handover there from, from Jim White, obviously, and then it was the new presenter coming in. So you're sitting there in that Scottsport hot seat. Are you painfully aware of the history there? It was something like the longest running sports programme of, of, of all time at some point, wasn't it? 
So that you, yeah. you're, you're sitting in the same chair as Arthur Montford, Archie McPherson, Jim White, and, and then it's your turn. Are you aware of the history? Do you feel a pressure there to, to you know, um, you know, keep 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 the momentum going of, of such a uh, a great show? Yeah, it was huge pressure. It, it, it was a massive program at the time, uh, absolutely massive. And, and there were only three presenters. I was the third. Uh, Arthur was the first one and the longest serving. And I knew Arthur very well because he used to still, even though he was retired, he used to still come into STV and chat to us all the time. Uh, and then Jim White took over after Arthur, and then I took over from Jim White. Um, so I, I was only the third presenter or custodian of that chair. Uh, and it was a big thing, and, and, and it was a huge thing. It was, it, I actually think it was bigger then than, than sports scene is now. Um, and I'm very proud of that fact. And, and you're right, we were in the Guinness Book of Records. Although I can tell you the story about that very briefly because yeah. it was decided by Guinness that we were the longest running sports program in the world. So as a presenter, I was given a, a huge fancy certificate, which is, is still on the wall behind me as I speak to you. Uh, and also uh, the, the producer was given a certificate and the, the station was given a certificate, which hung in the hung in the foyers, you walked into STV. And then suddenly someone came up with some programme in South America, which had, had been going about three weeks longer than us. Oh, no. Uh, so we were we were erased from the Guinness Book of Records, but we all still have the certificates. <laughs> so Scott Sport was no longer the world's longest running sports programme. It, uh, it was beaten by, I think it was a programme in Peru or something. So, uh, but yeah, it, it, was a, it was a huge honour to present that show and... Um, Certainly, I, I actually regretted leaving because I, I left because we, we had a little bit of a hoo-ha over money and Satanta offered me a bit more and mm. uh, I decided to go to Satanta. But I'd, I'd, rather, I'd rather have seen my time out in Scottsboro, but be, that's the way things work. That's, that's, everybody has to move on sometime. I was, I, Satanta's on my list to, to ask you about in a wee second, Jim. Um, but, yeah, I just want to highlight just... For, for any listeners who are maybe a wee bit younger, they, they don't remember yeah. Scott Sport and its prime, but it, it was huge. I remember, um, you know, like I said, as a, as a football daft kid, Sundays were terrific because you were you were spoiled. You had Serie A on, on Channel 4, which emerged in the 90s. So you'd sit down on a Sunday afternoon, you'd watch Serie A and then Scott Sport would come on. It, it was fantastic. It was a great way to, to spend your Sunday. But as you said, um, you, you moved on to Satanta. Now, obviously, there was it was like a, a new era of television almost for, for Scottish football. But um, one thing I wanted to ask you about was you, you covered a lot of different leagues. I remember, am I right in saying there was um, Dutch football, French football, and was it Germany as well? Is that right? Yep. Uh, I, I, did, I did Bundesliga and French League, League One. Uh, and I filled, I filled in on Dutch, uh, and I did Scottish football highlights. So uh, I did live Bundesliga, live French, bit of live Dutch and Scottish highlights. So that, that was my brief. Oh. Uh, and in the midst of all that, I think we did a few magazine programmes as well. There was a programme called mm -hmm. Press Box, which mm, Rob, McLean, yeah. uh, Rob McLean and I shared between us. Um, so no, I, I thoroughly enjoyed Satanta. It, was, it, was, uh, it certainly uh, took me right out of my comfort zone. Uh, having to having to know yeah. German and French football inside out for a couple of years well, it certainly didn't do me any harm yeah. no no not, not at all I, I was going to ask whether at that point in time obviously 
even even from them, it doesn't seem that long ago, but even from then, the, the, the game was so multicultural now. But was there anything in particular about these more continental games that really stuck out for you that was, you know, and like you say, took you out your comfort zone from Scottish football? Was there anything that really stuck out for you? No, it was just it was just it came at a time when I was I was looking to do something different. Uh, and and when when the, the producer of Satanta said, Look, I've I've hired you as, as a well known face in Scotland, but I want you to do the European stuff. And I said, Well, that's that's great, terrific. Uh, and it was a it was a new audience, and it's it's a new audience that for, for these kind of leagues that has been taken up by other broadcasters and they do very well. Uh, but Satanta were one of the first to really uh, do it with any consistency and uh, professionalism and um, although they, they, they messed up in the end and they had to chuck it but uh, they, they, they certainly gave it a good go and uh, it's good to see that all these leagues are, have been well covered by other stations now but I, I thoroughly enjoyed especially the German I really enjoyed the Bundesliga I got right into that right into that the French French football on a Sunday night could be a little bit tedious there was a lot of nil-nils a lot of one nils, but the Bundesliga was three, two, four, three every week. It was it was absolutely tremendous. Um, I've I've got a, um, kind of a question on what um following on the Satanta stuff. I mean, I must say I enjoyed the coverage that Satanta delivered. I know obviously went pear shaped a few years later, but I yeah. thought um they gave equal opportunities in terms of the highlight show to every game. It wasn't just like. 10 minutes Celtic plus analysis, 10 minutes Rangers plus analysis, and then a couple of minutes for everyone else. This was like every, yeah. equal time to every game. Um, yeah. But Donald on our group chat say, um, does ask, um, do you think when you made the big move to Satanta, there would be any inclination the company would fall so soon in 2009? So that's also three years after you arrived. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I signed, a, I, would, I, I wouldn't get into figures, but I signed a yeah. four-year contract uh, and I got to midway through year three uh, when it went uh, belly up. So uh, I, I signed a four-year contract in good faith. Uh, the, 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 you certainly couldn't complain about the money, um, but just a shame the way it ended. Uh, but certainly we have no inclination at all. I mean, I don't know if anybody remembers how it ended. They discovered, or whether it was willingly uh, or not, they discovered they hadn't paid their VAT in Britain. They were an Irish company and they hadn't paid their VAT in Britain. Uh, and they couldn't afford to pay their VAT once they realised how much it was. And that's when they pulled the plug. And it came as a massive shock. I was on the golf course. It came as a massive shock to everyone when it happened. And uh, we were all called in, asked to hand over our phones, our laptops, uh, and basically dismissed. That was it. Nothing. And because we were on contracts, we didn't get any redundancy or anything. Uh, I think we, we were paid up to that day and that was it. But uh, these things happen in life. Worst things happen at sea. And we just have to go on with it. Yeah, that, that's, that's quite incredible, Jim. And um, yeah, I, I remember it and it, it seemed quite sudden from, from the outside. So it's very, very difficult to imagine just how difficult that must have been to, to deal with uh, being so heavily involved in it. That kind of leads me on to one thing I wanted to ask you, um, which is about like resilience and, and, and coping with with things when when you know life doesn't go well. That that would be one example. And I suppose an, another thing more generally that that will happen when you know you're you're a broadcaster and you are you know, because it's your job to to put your head above the parapet and offer opinions and whatnot. And um, there'll be people who you know will 
verbally tell you you're wrong and you'll get into arguments and whatnot, whether it's on a on a phone in or whether it's interviewing a pundit or uh, you know even even life in general. I mean, how how have you learned to cope with you know that level of criticism or or, or when things go wrong? Have, have you got anything to fall back on? Is it support of your family? Is a you know experience from learning from other people? And um, how have you coped with things like that? Uh, I, th- I think I'm pretty thick skinned. Um, I've had plenty of criticism over the years. Still get plenty now, and uh, I, I always, I always tell people it's, it's it comes with the territory. Uh, I, I, I believe that most sincerely. Um, if, if if you're going to put yourself out there, then you have to ex- expect criticism. Um, I, I try to deflect it a little bit with humour, especially on Twitter. Um, but I didn't, I didn't have that back then. Uh, that's a relatively new thing, as you all know. Um, so I do try to deflect it a little bit with humour, but some people still think it's serious business and, and, and want to dig you up for just about everything. But uh, no, I, I think I cope with it pretty well. Yeah, definitely. definitely. And, um, we're obviously been talking about Satanta, and um, I think obviously there's discussions about the new TV deal. Even though the current deal doesn't run out until 2025, um, Neil Doncaster seems in a hurry to get this um, over the line now. And there's been a lot of criticism about the Sky um, contract that's been offered, um, which seems from, well, my my perspective, looking at some figures elsewhere, way below the um, market value of what we believe Scottish football to be. Um, but given the Satanta experiences um, as well, that obviously they got a contract and then it, it went tits up. Um, John from the um, our podcast, he's a regular host, um, he... he he asked the question, what do you think with regards to the proposed TV deal and what suggestions do you have to make our game more marketable? Oh, wow. Uh, I, I think we have a very good product. Um, I really do think we have a very good product. I, uh, for my sins, own three season tickets at St Mirren. Um, I, 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 tend to be, I tend to be really busy on a Saturday still, so I, I, it's usually my wife and my son who go. Uh, but I, I try and get along now and again. And um, I, I thoroughly enjoy being at a game in a non-working capacity. Uh, so I, I do think we've got a good product. Um, I like a good shout like everybody else, like that, that referee down south who goes to the Tranmere games. Um, so I, I, I really enjoy going to football. I, I've been known to stand at the, on the terracing at Somerset Park of a, of a quiet evening. Um, so, yeah, I think we've got a good product. Um, I'm... I've never been convinced, and I'd, I'd probably include Scottsport in this to some extent. I've never because we were part of it. I've never been convinced that we put enough cameras on our games. Uh, that's all down to money, uh, and I, I, I do think, although people tell me it's not going to be the case, uh, I do think that it could be a problem with VAR or VAR, if you if you want to call it that. Um, down south, they, they have multi-camera OBs on every single Premier League match. And if you watch, and this is not a dig at sports scene, in case anybody's listening, if you watch sports scene on a Saturday night right now, you will see one or two of the Premier League games, the flagship Premier League games, covered by three or four cameras. And that is not good enough for VAR. Uh, so if, if they want to get VAR right, and I hope they do, I just haven't seen the right signs so far, if they want to get it right, they're going to have to have multi-camera OBs and they're going to have to find a way to pay for it. And so far, despite all the positive noises, uh, and I am a bit detached now from the television business, so I'm, I am observing from afar, 
but so far I've not been totally convinced that um, it's going to look quite as good, the VAR up here, as it does down south. I, I remain to be convinced and I hope to be persuaded otherwise. Don't like the fact they're introducing it halfway through the season. I think they should take their time with it. You know, there's just yeah, that, that, that seems <laughs> odd. That just seems odd. I, yeah. I don't understand that at all. Yeah, and you mentioned them um, getting it as good as um, down south. Well, there's a lot of problems down in England. They've never quite got it right. And you think about the billions that they throw at this thing down there. So, yeah, um, and just, just interrupt you there, John. I, mm-hmm. I think with, with with VAR, I never know whether it's VAR or VAR, but anyway, with with VAR. I think the problem is always going to be there is there is always or there are always going to be situations where there is no definitive answer and it still comes down to a human decision. And I don't think people accept that. I, I think people have to understand that you can have a hundred cameras on a game and there will be one decision every eight weeks that there is no definitive answer. And yet we do not accept that. We have to accept that at some point you're going to have to come down to a referee's or a or a fourth official or a VAR official's judgment. And it's not obvious to the naked eye or to people viewing on TV. Correct. I mean, that's... It, it, and you think about the, the referees that we've got just now, <laughs> do you trust them with them? technology? I mean, technology works as well as the humans, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's, that's the thing down south as well. They're full-time professional referees. And, and up here, you know, guys, you work all week, and okay, it's, it's a few hundred pound or whatever to, to referee a, a, you know, quite a high level game in Scotland. It's 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 not going to be at the same level. I mean, I think for me, I'd I'd I swither Jim between being like a, a traditional football fan and embracing new things. But I think with VAR, for me, one one of the one of the great things about football is. You know, having an argument, having a discussion after a game, you know, for, for days sometimes about that yeah. decision that, that referee had. And I think with with um you know with the, the video assistant referees, it's you know, it takes part of that charm away from the game, part of that attraction for it. It's almost it's almost too clinical when it's when it's um you know, I, I think the way it's done down in England, um it's it's just it's too clinical. There's no charm or romance about it anymore. You can't even properly celebrate a goal because you you think well did something happen five or six passes ago that you know all the players missed and the referee missed that someone in in a room miles away has picked up on um yeah i I, I worry a wee bit about it from that point of view yeah we'll we'll we'll, uh we'll give it time uh but like john and and like yourself i'm I'm just i'm just not sure that's bringing it in halfway through the season it's just going to cause major eruptions if there are identical decisions like turned over or, or, or good going against someone and then somebody will say, hi, but what about that Rangers game at Easter Road? You know, and it's like, and it happens in the same season and they talk all about sporting integrity and everything. It's, it's very odd, but good luck to them. Good luck. I will watch with interest. Yeah, as, as will we all. Um John also asked, um, I'm just going back to your Scottsport days, what was your most memorable moment from presenting Scottsport? Obviously, presenting at the World Cup or from the studio for the World Cup must be right up there. Yeah, oh goodness, that, that is a difficult one. But um, the, the, the one little thing that springs to mind, and it's, it's related to Scottsport without being a Scottsport programme, uh, it was just before that World Cup. 
and I did the draw live. Uh, it went out on STV, what was then Grampian TV and Border TV, and it was me presenting with Alec McLeish. And of course, the, the draw came out with Scotland drawn against Brazil. And when we realised that we were going to play Brazil in the opening match, uh, I looked over at Big Eck and he was dying in his chair. He just could not believe it. And, and that was that was quite a moment. And to, to, to then have someone in my ear say, yeah, it's right. And then to talk about it for the next five minutes, it was just absolutely sensational. But I mean, the, the, there were loads of loads of terrific moments and I just you've just caught me on that one. I just can't think of an absolutely outstanding Scotsport moment. I remember leaving Scotsport the night I left Scotsport. Uh, I was I was uh, they'd actually held on to me for for more than the three month notice period, uh, and there was a bit of a hoo ha between STV and Satanta at the time. And the, the night they finally said I could go, I harked back to Arthur Montford, uh, who at that point was still alive, uh, sadly gone now. And I remember how Arthur always signed off by saying goodbye for the present. And that night when I left Scotsport for the last time, I said goodbye for the present. So I don't know whether I thought I was coming back or uh, or whether that was just a nice way to go. But that's what I did anyway. That, that's a lovely sign off and brings me nicely on because John asked you about that sort of memorable moment. I was going to ask you about a memorable colleague. You've obviously worked with huge figures in, in Scottish journalism and, and you know, like you said, not, not just football, but a wide range of sports. Is there anyone, uh, well, first of all, someone that you really enjoyed working with, you know, Jerry McNee, someone like that, but also was there a time when you were really properly starstruck? You you had a figure in front of you and you thought, oh, wow, I can't believe I'm speaking to this person and, and this is my job, I'm getting paid for this. <laughs> eh. <laughs> I was never really a big football worshipper, I have to say. Um, so I, I don't, I don't remember any particular uh, football type person who really had me dumbstruck. Uh, I do remember, if you'll remember the extra time program, which which varied between a Friday night and a Saturday lunchtime, and I had to go and interview uh, plain old Alec Ferguson back then, uh, down in Manchester at the old training ground. And I think it was just after, yeah, it was. It was just after the bust up he'd had very publicly with Kevin Keegan, and we we booked him. We basically said, "Look, Ali, we need we need at least twenty minutes." So we we got him all sat down, and he was looking at his watch, and this better only be twenty minutes, right? I said, "Well, be Alec, don't worry, it'll just be twenty minutes. Fine, maybe a wee bit less than that." Now, listen, don't you ask me about him. And I thought, what, what does he mean, him? And then I realised he meant Kevin Keegan, and I thought, oh right, okay. So I thought, well, let's get everything else in the can. And we asked him about this, that, and the next thing, Ryan Giggs, all the rest of it went through. Absolutely everything to do with Manchester United. And then right at the end, when I knew I had a 20-minute programme to take back up the road, I said, now, about Kevin Keegan, well, he just opened up and ranted for two and a half minutes, one answer, two and a half minutes, on Kevin Keegan... And that was the two and a half minutes we used when we got back up the road. <laughs> <laughs> the other twenty minutes ended up in the bin. So that that was that that was quite a day. <laughs> oh, that's a great story. That's brilliant. Who are your um, your favourite um, uh, pundits that you would have um, worked with um, during your Scottsport days? Um, I know that 
during the France 90 World Cup that you're on with um, Alan McAnally and uh, Paul Sturrock, but then after that, yeah. between McAnally for quite a bit and um, who else? Um, yeah, who I used, else to do, used to do a lot with Jerry McNee. Um, still very good friends with Jerry, although I haven't bumped into him for a while. I must look him up. He's gone um, under radar a bit. He's not he public. has, and, and deliberately so. He always said to me when he retired, you would not see or hear from me. And, and he's been true to his word. Uh, but no, I worked, worked with Alan McAnally for a couple of years on Scotsport Extra Time, uh, and that was certainly entertaining. Uh, we, 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 <laughs> we had some good laughs on that programme, and him and I went to Munich uh, to, do a, to do a feature on Bayern, uh, the mighty Bayern that he'd played for, obviously. And uh, I didn't know what to expect, and we, we went away for two nights, three days and two nights. And when I tell you that that man, even then, he, he, he'd been gone from Munich for 10, 15 years. Even then, he opened every door in that city. Every door in that city. Everybody knew Alan McAnally. It was, if he told me that, I would not have believed him. But because I was with him, I witnessed it. He even got us into a club late one night, which was a private party for about 200 people and Alan chapped on the door. The guy was turning people away by the bucket load and he said, Alan McAnally, come in, come in. And we were into this private party. It was unbelievable. So uh, yeah, I loved working with Alan. Jerry was fantastic. Jerry had his ear to the ground on absolutely everything. And we actually, uh, I'll tell you this story very quickly, but we, we shared an office with uh, Kirsty Young. And Kirsty at that point did a, did a, I think it was a lunchtime show she did. And she used to have some rather odd guests on. And uh, Jerry and I were sitting in the office and uh, they were doing a, a programme about reincarnation. And quite a few people had come in dressed as who they thought they had been in a past life. And Jerry was sitting on the phone opposite me and he was speaking at the time. Uh, I don't think it's any secret. He was speaking to David Murray, who was then the Rangers chairman. <laughs> and uh, this character walked in I can't remember what he was dressed as, but he was basically a knight in shining armour. And he clunked his way past Jerry and, and Jerry just raised his eyes and looked at him and just carried on his conversation uh, with David Murray. And the next thing is this woman walked past our desk and Jerry looked up, he looked back down and he said to David Murray, I'm sorry, David, Mary Queen of Scots has just arrived. <laughs> <laughs> And then carried on the conversation. And I just thought, this this must be one of the most surreal moments <laughs> in television history as Mary, Queen of Scots, sweeps majestically through the Scotsport office. <laughs> Did you ask what team she supports? I, I should have. I really should have. That would have been an exclusive. <laughs> Probably Linlithgow Rose. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I also remember you being on uh, a game of two halves um, a couple of times. It was presented by Jim White, and I remember him not giving you points because um, he says nobody likes a smart horse. Yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure there's a video of that somewhere as well, and uh, I think I was, I think I was on Tam Cowan's football show as well on the BBC, uh, and I'm sure I rode Jock the Cock. Uh, <laughs> If you know what I mean, yes. Uh, those those were fun days, but uh, it was it was all in the best possible taste. <laughs> um, oh, that's that's brilliant. I, I know I know John is, is is maybe got another couple of questions for you, but there was one thing that I was 
curious of, again, just going back to all this wealth of experience that you've got, and I, I think it's really nice, Jim, that you mentioned your, um, your, your 15-year-old that you've got thinking about journalism. Obviously, it's a very, very different career to, to, to when you, you started back in the 80s. But if you could give a young person listening, there's quite a few people listening to the, this podcast, a few people contribute to this podcast as well, um, who you know, are, are making their way in journalism. We've got uh, young Kyle, who's part of the podcast, and um, he's just recently got a, a great qualification. So well done, Kyle. If you could give someone some advice about moving forward uh, in this sector, um, what, what would it be? I think the advice would be the, the same advice I got when I was an undergraduate uh, working on the Sunday Standard and, and Charlie Wilson, who went on to become editor of The Times in London, and he was also editor of The Old Sporting Life uh, before it went defunct. And, and he, he said to me, you've got a break, but go back and finish your degree. Uh, and I did that. And uh, I, I, I've never actually used it. It was a degree in business studies from uh, what is now Glasgow Caledonian. Uh, but I've never actually used it, but I, I always thought that that was the right thing to do, to have some kind of qualification behind me. Uh, and if, if certainly uh, you mentioned my son and, and, and to anybody else that age or slightly older, I, I, would, I would say get some kind of qualification behind you, whether it's a journalism qualification or, or anything else. But as long as you get something to fall back on, I think that's the best advice. It's certainly in this current climate that, that anybody could offer. Do you know that that's really interesting because... I've, I've I've just kind of got back into doing a, a lot of writing this this year, but I, I did do a fair bit ten years ago. So my, my day job, I'm I'm a teacher, right? And um, I never quite found the time. You know, I've got three kids and busy job and, and, and whatnot. And then it was I, I was just coming to the tail end of finishing a, a post grad degree, and I have to say, like, the, I feel there's a big difference in my writing. Having done all that academic writing, I feel as though that I I, I can self-edit to a certain extent. I feel as though I can, um, you know, you know, find the flow of, of a text. I feel as though when I'm doing my research as well, it, it really helps you you know what things to scan for. So um, I hadn't really thought about it until you you mentioned it there. How much that's probably helped me. So I, I think that's terrific advice, Jim. Yeah, well, I, I, I write a lot, obviously, in, in, in terms of the sun, and, and it is a, it's a different skill writing for the sun uh, as writing for a, a broadsheet, uh, which I've done as well. Uh, but it's a, it's a very particular skill, and it's a, it's a skill that I take great pride in. And you don't just get to write for the sun. You, you have to know what you're doing to write in that particular way. Uh, and I, 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 as I say, I take great pride in that. But uh, just, just very, very briefly, uh, on the Glasgow Caledonian point, and, and also connected to STV. When I started at STV, I was sitting opposite Shireen Nanjiani, who is now a presenter on Radio Scotland. But her and I used to present Scotland Today together, along with uh, Viv Lumsden, long before Mr John Mackay came along. And uh, Shireen said to me, so uh, I, I did a degree at Glasgow University. Um, what did you do before you came in here? And I said, oh, I, I did a degree at Glasgow Caledonian University. And Shireen turned around and said, oh, yes. The tech. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a very Glasgow Uni response. My place straight away. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's fascinating because um, people round right, right about my age, there's yourself, there's you know Jerry McNee, there's Shireen Nanjiani, there's Kirsty Young that you, you mentioned yeah. earlier. 
um, all these people are real household names. I, I just think it's such a quite a unique thing about Scottish journalism. Um, you know, you go a few miles further south and people wouldn't be aware of, 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 of these celebrities in, in our eyes. I think well, it's just, we, we, we grew up with these people and it was a time when there was a lot happening in the world, you know, the 90s and early 2000s and, and whatnot. So you guys were, were, were on the telly constantly. So yeah. it's a huge part of our lives. Well, here, here is your first Strictly Come Dancing exclusive I bet it's the first ever Strictly Come Dancing exclusive you've had on here. And <laughs> it, regards, it regards Kay Adams, who is going to be on Strictly this year. And Kay Adams and I did a duet on the karaoke Love Shack by the B-52. <laughs> so there you go. You have an exclusive. Do you have the recording of it? We need to hear this now. I wish I, wish I did. And, and she wishes I didn't. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Strictly Come Dancing exclusive. You were going on. <laughs> I'm on next year. Next year. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Well, let's, we'll, we'll leave that to Tess Daly, see if it gets a mention. <laughs> yeah. Hashtag get me in Strictly Come Dancing. I, b- <laughs> I believe she's a listener. <laughs> uh, so you um you did also have a hand in radio for six years or five years, sorry, um at Clyde. Um and Another one of our um, podcast members, Josh, um, wants to ask who you, um, who the best pundits were um, from your time at Clyde, and um, and I want to. Um, he also asks, what's the most bonkers call you ever took? There must be one or two to pick from. So uh, yeah, uh, there was there was one guy who used to uh, call up basically every night, and and we got to the stage where he was only allowed on once a fortnight. Uh, and he used to go on about stuff being flushed down the stanky, and and he was always clever enough that he. he he just kept within the borderlines of decency that we didn't have to cut him off because I had a button underneath my desk which allowed me eight seconds to get a guy off air without it actually going out on air. The miracles of digital technology. Uh, but no, uh, Hugh Keevans is obviously a legend on that programme and he was before and he, he still is, I believe. Uh, and Hugh was, Hugh was tremendous to work with. And uh, I, I brought Gordon DL onto the radio. Uh, I brought Roger Hanna on. It's your fault. <laughs> it's my fault. Uh, and I think both of them are, are terrific, uh, terrific pundits. Uh, I, I believe they're still doing it. I, I certainly know that. Uh, the last time I spoke to both of them, they were. Uh, so, yeah, it was tremendous. I, I I wasn't overly keen on the midweek show, but I, I used to love the actual football show on a Saturday. So, I would I would do that again, but not all that midweek nonsense. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, but what was the most challenging bits when you were, um, you know, you mentioned you've got the eight-second dump button, um, so to speak. Um, but what were um, some of the other biggest challenges, like, um, like trying to control fans who come on and maybe go that little bit too far in terms of ranting and raving? Uh, I, I think the, the the dump button was the the most important bit of that particular uh, show. Um, but also, I, I suppose, just just trying to keep it on the straight and narrow. I mean, that that was a it was a horrendous period that time. I, I did uh, I did that show, and uh, it, it was all while Rangers were whatever you want to say. What happened to Rangers? I'm not going to go into that. But Rangers were in a bit of trouble, and uh, the, the the atmosphere was toxic, and uh, there were all sorts of threats going on. I, I remember at one point getting told that they knew where my kids went to school. Uh, so I, I wasn't happy with that. That ended up with the police. Uh, 
Um, so no, that that kind of degenerated a bit, and it was there were lawyers involved in various things, and no, I don't have any happy happy memories of that. But the actual the actual football side of it, I used to love, but uh, I, I I can't say I remember with any great fondness doing that phone in. To be perfectly honest with you. Um, and I know you're also happy doing what you're doing now. Um, do you miss, you know, the broadcast side of things? Is it something that you'd love to go back to in the future or are you just content, happy with what you're doing now, just being away from the public eye, so to speak, apart from Twitter, obviously? No, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted what I'm doing just now. Uh, even, you know, I know what you're alluding to, but even before that, I mean, my whole career has been based on people phoning you up and offering you jobs and, when the phone doesn't ring, it doesn't ring, and you can't really complain about it. Uh, so, you know, if the, if the broadcast phone was to buzz, then I would answer it, but it's not buzzing, and, and we, we've moved on, and we, we do other things. Yeah, good stuff, right. Um, we normally end with um, what's called, well, we, it's supposed to be around the quite fire questions, but um, we nickname them slow fire because it takes so long to A, ask them, and B, go through them, um, get the answers. <laughs> um, first of all, Chris from the chat, um, just before we go into that, he does ask... Um, is it better being the main presenter running things or being one of the reporters covering a specific game? Uh, I loved being the main presenter. I would always choose that. And what what do you prefer, presenting from a studio or from within the stadium, which just seems more common now? Uh, I always preferred being at an outside broadcast. So that would to, to narrow that down, that would be in the stadium, yeah. So that's why you would have been resentful, Jim White, being in transport, sure, in the students. You know, this program is too short to go into that story, but uh, I got the best gig there. <laughs> uh, let's let's uh, let's just say history was rewritten. We'll save that for part two. We might do a few um, France '98 specials. <laughs> What's your favourite tipple? Uh, at the moment, it is zero lager because I've no alcohol for four years. Excellent, excellent. Um, I know that uh, one of the other contributors to the podcast, Erin, she always asks uh, the guests uh, their, their favourite pie. Kelly pie. <laughs> nice, short, nice short and sweet answer. I have one in my fridge. I bought it today. Brilliant. <laughs> Who's the who was the biggest wind up merchant from your time at Scott Sport? Uh, probably Jim White. Uh, I, I remember when uh, when we used to get in those bad old days when we get cash expenses. Jim used to go up to the window every Thursday, tap the window, and say "beer money." <laughs> <laughs> those days have gone. <laughs> well and truly. Um, if you if you were ever up in death row for whatever reason, what would your death row meal be? Uh, my last meal. Well, my yeah, death row. Or what, your favourite meal, even. Uh, what, what would it be? Uh, what would it be? Uh, I should say a killy pie, but I'd probably say a plate of potato soup. Interesting choice. A lot of people go Com- for comfort food. Comfort food. I like that. Yeah. Comfort food. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, so you've also mentioned some of the race courses you've been to in um, in Scotland. Um, if you were to go abroad for horse racing, um, where, was, what, where would you like to go and why? Uh, the most exotic track I have ever been at is the Garrison Savannah in Barbados. Uh, wow. And I've only been once and I'd love to go back. Do you have any more? Yeah. 
Yeah, spinning. I was just going to say it's, it's it's a shame that you know you'd have to spend time in Barbados. You know, like I know. That, that, yeah, the racetrack's probably the highlight of that trip. I would imagine. <laughs> the, the great thing about that trip was I went I went to the meeting on a bus, uh, and the local guys were mostly employed cutting cane, mm-hmm. and everybody on the bus except me had a machete. <laughs> And they weren't in sheaths either. They were just they were just carrying these blades. It was the most disconcerting bus journey I have ever been on, and I've been on a few. <laughs> yeah, there's a few mega bus journeys I think uh, cross country that would uh, rival that, perhaps. Glasgow, <laughs> Aberdeen. <laughs> yeah. Um, have if, if you got any more? Have you got another question for give the showstopper? <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I think another one that was asked of me when I first came on the show, Jim, and maybe one to finish off with. So usually this is a bit of a, a fantasy question, but given that you've been so well connected in, in the world of sport and and you know and, and beyond, um, I think it's the classic question of uh, the dinner party. If you could invite three guests to a dinner party, uh, who would they be and why? So I'm inviting three. Yeah. Uh, one one would be Billy Connolly. Excellent. Uh, because I, I think his humour is just sensational, and that's uh, that's no slight on uh, Kevin Bridges. Uh, but it's so timeless I, as well, I think, with Billy. Yeah, Connor. I think I think you know he's you know from from when he started on stage in the seventies, you know, his banjo and whatnot, to to now he still makes people laugh at all, of all yeah. ages. So I think that's a great show. Uh, the second, I'm going to sound like Michael Parkinson because the second one I picked would be Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. I know he's not alive, but uh, I, I managed to meet him once and got him oh, to sign a book, nice. uh, which I, I still have. And my, my niece, who's really into boxing, is desperate to get her hands on it. Uh, so, yeah, Muhammad Ali. Uh, who would be my third one? Uh, it would have to be a female, and it would have to be my good Excellent. lady, Sheena. Yes. So she, she'd be there, and she would not be there for the cooking. I'd be doing that. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Can- Great answers. Yeah, definitely. You can always bring Gordon Ramsay in to do the cooking. You can just chat to your guests. I'm a dab hand in the kitchen. I'm sure so, yeah. What, what, what would you make them then, Jim? Oh, no. Uh, Kelly, bye. I'll, I'll tell you what I made tonight before before I came on here. I made it for tomorrow night, so it's best to sit overnight. I made a bolognese sauce for tomorrow night, and it'll just sit overnight, and it'll be perfect. Nice. Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I like that tip. Sounds I might good. try that one day. Yeah, and um, <laughs> my my showstopper question, so to speak. So we normally ask people for best 11s or six to six. Um, I'm going to do something different with you. If you were to pick a broadcasters and journalist six to six team, who would it be? Right, I'd have to. I'd have to have Gordon Diel, uh, because he's a footballer. Uh, <laughs> I'd have young Gordon Duncan, who now I don't. Does he still do Super Scoreboard? I think he does. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I have haven't young, listened to Super Scoreboard for a while. I'd, I'd have young Gordon because he's a good player as well. Uh, I'd have to put myself in the team. Um, I'd probably draft in McAnally, despite the fact his knees have gone. <laughs> have I got two more? That's two more. Yeah, yeah. I need a I need a goalkeeper, so I'm going to take Jock Brown. Excellent. <laughs> Uh, Jock Brown played for our media team in Sweden in '92. Last game, yeah, I've got the story. Yeah, and 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 bust his arm, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. If you uh, want to read more about it, you need to buy the book. Scotland, Sweden. I'm going Adventures. to buy it. I'm going to buy it. Definitely <laughs> going to buy it. I've I've got uh, my copy just over there. <laughs> 
And I think if, if I have one, one more that I have to put in, who would I put in? I'm, I'm toiling now to get one more person in my team. Uh, so I, I think we'd maybe have to have one injured and I'll just settle for the five just now. What about Jim White? Or uh, Jerry? Couldn't kick a ball to save himself, Whitey. <laughs> See, that man down. down. <laughs> he went to a rugby school. Ah, right. oh, did he? Really, really? Least, least I went to football school. <laughs> <laughs> that is brilliant Jim listen thank you very much for coming on it's been a pleasure um, speaking to you and um, thanks Benny for um, your assistance in, in putting this podcast together as well it's been an absolute pleasure having you both on it's, it's, it's gone in a flash thank you so much Jim that's brilliant thank you boys it's been a pleasure thank you very much indeed hey, take care thanks all the best 